football show on the World Football Index. Um, I'm your host, Alan Feely, as ever coming to you from Lisbon and Portugal. And I'm joined today by three excellent guests to talk about the past week's European football action. Um, Jasmine Baba is coming to us from Hessen in Germany. Jasmine, how are you? I will be okay if my internet connection stabilizes and doesn't kick me up this fruit chat once again. But apart from all that, yeah, all good. Yeah, how about you? I'm okay, not too bad, not too bad at all. Yeah, we have had some minor technical difficulties, but nothing that can't be overcome, hopefully. Uh, John O'Sullivan, Galway City, how are you? Yeah, uh, as lockdown goes, I'm pretty good. The weather is absolutely terrible, so I made a massive pot of creamy mashed potatoes to you know, fulfill a stereotype, and uh, they were very comforting, and I feel ready. Fantastic, you're well-fueled, well-fueled. Uh, Ewan McTeer, the esteemed author from... The Spanish capital, by way of Scotland. How are you? Yeah, good. Maybe, maybe not as comfortable as as John with his comfort foods there, but uh, yeah, certainly doing good here in Madrid. Fantastic, fantastic. But yeah, it's it's been fascinating European football. Um, we were discussing shortly before hitting record about everything that's happened. There has been so much happening; it's almost possible to forget major events, um, given the volume of things going on. But. Uh, but yeah, I guess, John, we're going to start in your favourite place, which is Liverpool. I mean, we know your sympathies for the club and we know they're going through a difficult time at the moment. And we also know there's been quite a lot of hot takes, piping hot takes, you could say, uh, across social media about their malaise and their various issues. But I just wanted to go to you for something more reason, perhaps. Uh, you know, they lost 1-0 to Chelsea on Thursday evening, lost 1-0 to Fulham on Sunday evening. Uh, they lost six home games in a row. Uh, what's going on? <laughs> I have to laugh at it. It's a really good coping mechanism. Uh, after 68 games undefeated and seasons upon seasons of being undefeated at Anfield, they're, they're so, so vulnerable there at the moment. And they actually set a record, unfortunately, on Sunday. And no other team in the Premier League history has recorded more shots at home without scoring the Liverpool with 115. So, like, that kind of paints a picture into uh, into what's going wrong with them. And, you know, Maybe contrary to public belief, it's not all about the, the defence. Uh, the midfield and the attack have also taken their term in the spotlight of indignity. So um, it, it, it's been a really disappointing run. But I guess I saw someone describe it on Twitter the last day as shocking. Uh, yes, it's shocking. But when you kind of look at the context, maybe it's not so shocking with the players they have missing. With the other personnel who have had to play much more in lieu of those other players being injured and with like the personal tragedies that some of the staff members and players have had to have gone through. So it's it's been really uh, it's been a really testing and trying time since after Christmas. And uh for many years as a Liverpool fan, you'd be absolutely dreading the international break because you would just know that someone would come back injured. Typically it was Daniel Sturridge after Roy Hodgson would do some draconian 1840s training kind of regime with him and he ended up breaking down and missing like six months of action for Liverpool. So, But I think right now, in terms of having a restorative impact, it, it could be key for, for this squad and for Klopp to maybe just have a few days off and get out of each other's sight for a while because I don't think really there's anything tactically that he can do in this in in this period that can really resuscitate the team because I think they're just running on empty. So I think this break could be could be big for them. But in saying that, uh, Chelsea and Fulham were very impressive in the individual games. I thought Chelsea had a game plan and they executed it 
perfectly. They had Jorginho playing as a quarterback and he would release Timo Werner quite often behind Liverpool's high line and it, it worked a treat and 1-0 flattered Liverpool. As for Fulham, Liverpool didn't really threaten them all that much despite Areola making a brilliant save for Jota and I think we're going to discuss it later, but now they look very much like they, they could be a candidate to survive. And I think Newcastle will be looking quite nervously over their shoulders. So uh, fair play to them. I've always felt that their position in the table was maybe a little bit false and that they had a much better squad and a much better team than what uh, their results were showing, kind of like a Brighton, so to speak. So uh, fair play to both of those teams. Chelsea continued that momentum tonight, obviously, with a win over the other Merseyside team, Everton, and they look, in my opinion, uh, set for second. So uh, a massively disappointing week for Liverpool, but I mean, <laughs> I've kind of become accustomed to it, unfortunately. Yeah, I think, you know, you, to be fair, you have been preach, uh, singing um, Fulham's praises for some weeks now, and they are beginning to show what they can do and uh, they have a very good balanced team under Scott Parker it seems but uh, just in terms of Liverpool like I get the feeling that a lot of Liverpool fans and even the players and the coach you could say would actually you know if they could go to sleep tonight and wake up in August and refresh again for maybe a more liberal uh, land in terms of COVID restrictions but also a new start for the season like would you like to do that and also how will that affect their mentality going into a crucial uh, Champions League last 16 game this week against Leipzig where they have an advantage of course but given their paucity of you know form or ability it seems to win football matches will that have a serious effect in that game do you think? Well personally I would hop into the deep freeze and stay there until August if I knew I could survive it and be thawed out for around the start of the next season and when the vaccine rollout spreads up in Ireland and I can go for pints so yeah I, I would take that option if were it available to me I, I just think it, it it needs a refresh i mean these are the players really um, a management team that really seem to be you know powered by the fans by the emotion of it all in the image of Klopp he's a very emotional person i think that gives him an extra wind in his sails so to speak so uh i think i think even having the fans back will help obviously getting some injured personnel back and yeah just uh, just to kind of break out of this whole narrative of you know setting records for the wrong reasons and everything kind of everything that could go wrong has gone wrong i think i think uh they really need the season to end to be honest and you you say that like they have the advantage over leipzig and you know it would be it would be fairly typical of their last few weeks for them to blow that but i, I really do think that they they just they just need an extended break like a lot of people will talk about Maybe Klopp needs to try new tactical approach as well. Number one, he doesn't have the training time because of how condensed the season has been. And number two, like moving to a four-four-two isn't going to make a really unconfident player who's who's kind of maybe self-perception is on the floor all of a sudden turn into a world beater again. You know, it, it's a, it's a very simplistic thing to say. I think so. I can't see how they revive their season in any way, shape, or form in the next couple of weeks because the players are physically um, and mentally and probably emotionally all shattered. It's been, it's been a crazy year. And, and I think that it ties into another point that they're, pl- they're people. I mean, some of them have suffered bereavances and they haven't been able to grieve with their family properly. They, they must feel like they're living in Groundhog Day because the, their experience is training, game, training, game, training, game. 
and quite often those games are losses so that obviously has an impact on uh, on their mentality as well so I, I really just think a break is what they need and what they need badly yeah I think momentum is a very powerful thing in football uh, it really is in, it, in both a positive way and a negative way and uh, what's certainly afflicting Liverpool at the moment in a negative way there's another man in North London it's affecting in a very positive way you could say uh, I'm referring to Gareth Bale, of course. Um, Spurs beat Fulham last week, uh, midweek, 1-0, and dismantled Crystal Palace 4-1 um, at the weekend. And Gareth Bale was instrumental in both games, and he has been instrumental for Spurs in the past few weeks. He really looks back to his best. He spoke um, after the game against Crystal Palace that, you know, it's, it, it kind of took time for him to get back up to speed physically and, and mentally and just kind of find his form again after... So long inactive at the Santiago Bernabeu at Real Madrid under Zinedine Zanan, where he wasn't really favoured. Um, you, in, as someone who covers Real Madrid very, very closely, and you know, is if was a fellow Geary in uh, Madrid at the same time uh, Gareth was there. Uh, what's your take on the Gareth Bale situation? What's his ceiling now that he's back to playing really good football and he's scoring some fantastic goals? Do you think? I mean, obviously, he's not going to be the physically indomitable you know, 25-year-old that we we once knew, but do you think that he still has it in him to be a really top former? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if, if Gareth Bale and me went to the same sort of geary spots in Madrid. I think we lived quite different lifestyles while he was here. Um, I've not really picked up a golf club in my life and, and he's picked up many, but just to tell you what the Real Madrid view is, they're kind of viewing Bale as a stock right now, I think. You know, he went to Tottenham, <laughs> this, this stock absolutely plummeted, but there was nothing they could do. Just wait it out. Um, almost like the game stop, stop. Just just hold on to it. Wait and see what happens uh, and hope things level out. And for Real Madrid, uh, it has done. Uh, you know, All they need is for Gareth Bale to be good enough or for someone to think he's good enough in the summer to take him on another loan or to buy him uh, or take him on a, on a free transfer because his contract doesn't expire until 2022. Um, his agent is very famously um, not a big uh, fan of Real Madrid and, and their directors. Um, Bale's not going to leave a single euro on the table. He's not going to take a wage cut to rescind his contract. He's not going to um, do something that favours Real Madrid. They agreed to pay him the money. He's going to demand it, and it's, and it's in his right to do so. So Real Madrid, I think, are just hoping that he can keep this form up long enough that uh, someone will, if it's Tottenham or someone else, someone will take them in the summer and agree to pay those wages because, of course, Real Madrid right now are still paying some of his wages. So uh, that's their hope at the moment. We'll see what happens. Uh, it does leave some people looking a little bit red-faced. We're starting to see some comparisons of how Bale's stats are much better than Hazard, Vinicius, Asensio. Put a bunch of Real Madrid players together and, and Bale's actually starting to, to outstat them. But I think Real Madrid can live with the, the slight embarrassment of that if it means that they get him off the books this summer and not next summer. Certainly. Um, and a lot of the kind of narrative around the bail return to North London has been that, you know, a lot of English pundits questioning whether he has a desire to make it as a top pro anymore and kind of looking at his, you know, previous maybe 18 months at Real Madrid and his fallout with Zinedine Zidane in a professional capacity as kind of evidence of a difficult character who maybe doesn't have the, whether it's humility or whether it's, you know, appetite or de- dedication to kind of, you know, really play at the top level. Like, what can you explain about the end of his time at Madrid? How did he go from, you know, scoring a crucial goal in the Champions League final, a Galazzo, 
to then falling so out of favor under Zinedine Zidane. What's happened there when Zidane has such loyalty to, you know, Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, Casemiro, you know, Karim Benzema, Sergio Ramos, other players who have won major titles. Why isn't it the same situation with Gareth Bale, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Bale's been someone who's been so professional all his career and I think he just reached a point when he realised he wasn't in Zidane's plans anymore. Basically, when Zidane... Uh, came back even before that. To be honest, do you remember the the goals he scored? Sorry, John, that in that 2018 final in Kiev. Remember, he came off the bench to score those those goals. Zidane didn't start him in that final. So um, even towards the end of Zidane's first stint, Bale was falling out of favour. Certainly in the second stint, and I think once he realised that you can with some players, you can go one of two ways. You can work extra hard. You can try and uh, impress the coach. Um, leave an apple on his desk every morning, try and get back in his good books, or you can sort of just accept a big paycheck and life on the bench, uh, making funny faces and getting caught by the cameras. And Bale sort of went for the for the latter. And I think part of it as well was, you have to remember, at the end of his time at Real Madrid was that weird coronavirus time where I think everybody was just in a bit of a, a, bit of a weird place. There's no fans in the, in the stands, in the stadium. Bale's always been a bit of a joker and when there's no fans there, no atmosphere at all, I think he's one of those ones who tries to tries to bit, uh, bring a bit of, I don't know, fun to proceedings. Um, but at Real Madrid, when they were going for the title, it, that's not really what they were looking for. They didn't want fun, they just wanted the trophy at the end of the season. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there was some great goals in that game. Harry Kane specifically scored a stunning goal. Uh, one game where there wasn't great goals, Jasmine was... Uh, West Brom, nil, Newcastle, nil. Now, I'm not going to ask you about this game because I don't think we need to discuss it any further um, than it has been, which is, you know, the sum of the detail of this game. But I want to ask you about the relegation battle in general and your thoughts because it's quite a competitive situation down there, isn't it? I mean, yes, especially with Fulham winning against Liverpool um, and their general form in the last five games they've picked up. Eight wins out of a pot. Eight wins? No, definitely not eight wins. Um, eight points out of a possible fifteen. If you compare that to the other teams around them, I probably won't touch on Sheffield United or West Brom. I feel like eight points to make up in the last ten games of the season is probably too many right now for um a team that's conceded fifty six goals. <laughs> two per game on average from West Brom and Sheffield United who only have 14 points and have 12 points to make up but um, Brighton uh, after their third loss in a row look increasingly uh, likely to go down despite having all these good XG stats you need the quality to convert those into goals um, Newcastle is a highly talked about one after Yep, that draw. It's uh, they've only picked up five points from a p- possible fifteen, um, and Burnley have no wins in their last five, but four draws, four points out of the uh, out of fifteen. And if you look at the XG table for the last three spots on XG. You have West Brom, Major Albion in last place, then Crystal Palace, who are, even though they absolutely are crap for goals, they still get those kind of wins that keeps them up. And then next we've got Burnley, 
than Newcastle United. Um, but if you change that to expected points, so how many points they'll actually get out the result, you've got West Brom last, then you've got Sheffield United, which reflect the two already, but then you have Burnley, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> um, I think I think Fulham have the quality and they've got the form and then I think they've got winning solutions now to get them out of that relegation zone and at the moment they're only in relegation because of uh, goal difference compared to Brighton and I think this is going to be down to that last spot between um, Brighton, Newcastle and Burnley and I've not actually looked at the future fixtures because 10 games is probably just a little bit too much. Um, I think Newcastle will somehow scrape it because they always somehow pick up a really unexpected win, normally against the top eight side. So I think it's between um, Burnley and Brighton for that last spot. Yeah, it's so funny because it's such a class of style, isn't it? isn't it? Burnley and Brighton in the way they're perceived and the way they're talked about. Like, I mean... You know, Burnley are obviously, they've been around for quite a while now. Uh, they drew one, one moment with Arsenal on the weekends. Um, whereas Brighton are kind of, you know, this fresh team playing exciting football under Graham Potter, but not exactly living up to their XG in many ways, you know. So it's kind of going to be interesting to see if they finally can kick that habit and begin to actually win concrete games and, you know, climb the table. Because they're actually below Newcastle United at the moment, remarkably. Uh, which is kind of crazy when you consider the the rhetoric around the two clubs and the disparate nature of that. Uh, but Jasmine, like the Burnley Arsenal game, what are your thoughts on this? Because it was also like the West Brom game we mentioned. It wasn't a it wasn't a classic. Uh, it wasn't a classic, and to be fair, the last five minutes of that game, I don't know how the ball didn't go in for Arsenal. They kind of it kind of pinged everywhere, and then off the post and it was just one of those moments as an Arsenal fan you go we've just been unlucky um the goal that they conceded uh <laughs> if anyone's seen it I'm sure everyone's seen it Shaka kind of kicks it at um does anyone know the player's name I've completely forgotten it well it was to David Louise, but I think it hit off was it Burns I'm, it's, it's irrelevant. It was basically an own goal if your player kind of shanks it at. But um, it, it's everyone will jump on the player who kicked it, but it was actually goalkeeper soul, sells Xhaka down the river, basically. Um, and Xhaka doesn't deal with it correctly. Um, so they kind of got away with drawing. Burnley got away with drawing that game. Um but there's nothing really interesting about them that we've seen in past seasons. And they normally put up a fight against Arsenal, but the fight was against Arsenal themselves this time. Absolutely. Uh, John, just a quick word on the Manchester derby. Uh, I know it sounds almost kind of sacrilegious to say that, but I guess we didn't learn much from it, did we? I mean, like we know that Man City are in a phenomenal run of games and losing this game almost takes the... The monkey off their back in many ways because they don't have to protect this remarkable winning record anymore they can start from scratch and I think it was a very predictable United game in many ways you know go to a, a big team play on the break very well and uh, and score goals you know but I don't think that's their malaise under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer I think it's more to do with beating the teams in and around them so 
what what are your thoughts on United's situation at the moment in that in this game specifically? He uh he and Solskjaer is who I say when I mean he he um his record against Man City away is actually phenomenal. Um I don't think he's done so well against him at Old Trafford, but I think is that two or three wins now he has at the he has. And I think like styles make fights and in terms of in terms of a team that suits them, so to speak, Man City are perfect for United in the way they play. And, you know, they showed it once again uh, on Sunday. And, you know, City had their chances as well, obviously, that they, they could have got a couple of goals. But so too did United. Martial missed an absolutely guilt-edged opportunity, even though it was probably his best game for United in a number of months. Um, but I think Gabriel Jesus kind of just set the tone early on for City with, with that absolutely ridiculous foul. Like, what is he thinking? And then that just plays into their hands because all of a sudden United have something to protect. City have to exert themselves more than they would have maybe early to get a goal. And then that leaves them vulnerable uh, to the counterattack. But I must say I'm very pleased for Luke Shaw as much as it's anathema to me as a Liverpool fan to praise United players. But to come back from that horrendous leg break against PSV in the Champions League at such an age and then to be kind of derided and mocked and uh, he there's no two ways about it. he was body shamed online so to come back from all of that kind of like personal stick and all these kind of uh, adversities and bad circumstances and fair play to him i think really if you were looking at a hypothetical england 11 right now I, you'd have him over Ben Chilwell as the English left back in my opinion so it's been a really nice arc for him but United's issue has never really been the big games it's like <laughs> this season it's the first one they won and but they still they haven't lost very many of them uh, they've, they've drawn quite a lot of them nil all so like the real the real test for them is going to be how they get on in maybe the the lesser games and like if if they can get a bit more consistency there then they should definitely tie up top four which i guess was their objective for the season because i don't think they were ever ever going to win the league despite being top in january so i think really stylistically this kind of team suits united um but city were nowhere near at their best and i just wonder will that give some european teams more confidence about about playing them in the coming weeks. I thought uh, Jasmine mentioned last week that uh, Gladbach were quite meek against them when they played. They didn't really bring any of their customary, you know, high pressing or really quick transitions or aggression to the game. So I'm just wondering, because like, I think they're going to beat Gladbach realistically, given the cushion they have. But I just wonder in the, in the latter rounds, will a lot of teams look at Manchester United's performance and the means to which they got that victory and think, yeah, this is a way that we can hurt City because certainly I think if City played that way against someone like Bayern, they get absolutely smoked. So uh, that, that that's that's good. That's terrain remains to be seen. But uh, I think uh, yeah, a really disappointing uh, afternoon for City. But it reminds me of the season when Mourinho was at United when Pogba scored at uh, at the Etihad and United won there after being two 0 down. Uh, it'll probably just be a little tiny speed bump on the way to Manchester City's title possession, and you know. It might it might end up putting United second, but a very very distant second. So, I mean, it's it's not necessarily heartbreaking for City, and it's it, it's a great result for United. But I still think their same issues will persist. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, in Spain, there was a very very big game, another derby, another city derby. This time it was Madrid derby. It was Atletico Madrid versus Real Madrid, and it was a one one draw. Um, really interesting game, uh, you and. 
but they're taking it. Uh, Real Madrid drew one all with Real Sociedad early in the week and have really kind of recovered in La Liga to put together a legitimate title bid, as have Barcelona, who we'll touch on a bit later. Um, but just as somebody who's literally written the book on Atletico Madrid, um, what are your thoughts on their situation? I mean, it's kind of strange that they're not on the shoulder, kind of, you know, playing as the underdog. They're leading the pack and they have done for most of the season, which is a different kind of pressure. Um, so how do you think they're going to respond to this latest kind of mini slump in form uh, where they were missing here in Trippier and they had to, you know, pull Marcus Llorente to right back. Uh, Luis Suarez stopped scoring for a while. Uh, you know, Jan Oblik customarily so solid and in my opinion, one of the best goalkeepers in world football. And as you mentioned, your managing real podcast, you know, him and Courtois are probably the two best goalkeepers in the world at the moment. He did have a period where he was conceding more goals than he normally does. Do you think that, you know, having Trippier back, just that ability to free Marcus Lorente in the final third and kind of give more balance to the team, is that enough to get Atletico Madrid back on track? Or do you think they're going to struggle to kind of readjust their sights after falling from their kind of, you know, imperious start? Yeah, I think you've, you've highlighted there. Trippier is the, the key to this Atletico team more or less you know and his return is so huge uh he was he was phenomenal in the derby he tired a bit towards the end but that's normal when you've not been able to to kick a ball in earnest for for well two months basically so to have him back was huge he and Marcus Llorente down that right side for Atletico was was really special and that's what led to the first goal the Suarez goal so having him back I think will be massive obviously they didn't win this game but they they really did dominate Real Madrid for for the most part. Um, you know, the the first hour certainly, and even the the last half hour, Real Madrid had the ball. But Atleti are usually so comfortable with that, and then Benzema two minutes from time um, popped up. So I mean, tactically, what I saw in the in the derby tells you that Atletico Madrid are a much better team than Real Madrid right now. But there is that emotional element. You know, it's not. It's not just that both teams take away a point. It's that Real Madrid, you know, punched Atletico in the gut two minutes to go and took that point away at the Wanda where they've never beat Real Madrid yet. Yeah, they've only been there four years, but still, they've not got that derby win yet. They were so close, you could almost see it. And Real Madrid managed to to cling on and, and take that point. So it'll be interesting to see how they respond emotionally. We won't have to wait long because they play on Wednesday in one of their... Um, postponed fixtures we've all season long pretty much they've been top of the table and the line with Atletico Madrid is well they're X number of points ahead of everybody else and they have one game in hand well as of Wednesday they'll have played that game in hand against Athletic at home that's going to be huge that's going to be interesting to see how they do especially with that trippier factor that you mentioned because I don't know if he's going to play the, the whole 90 minutes in that one because uh, to, to come back and play two really intense games in a row and they play Hitafi at the weekend as well. Uh, you know, it's Trippier's back, but it doesn't mean that he's he's fully fit, that he's fully available yet. It'll take a bit of time. So that's going to be a really interesting one, just like the Derby was was fascinating to me. A bit of a shame that it, it did overlap with that Manchester Derby we just talked about, because um, those, I think, were uh, two of the massive games of the weekend, obviously, in Germany, as we'll get to a big one as well. But Bit of a shame that the the scheduling didn't work out for everybody to be able to watch all those games, uh, uh, you know, one by one and not have them overlap. Yeah, I was struck by the kind of high quality nature of the game. I thought it was a really, really competitive and intense game, very good game. And as you mentioned, Atletico were the better side, I thought. Um, 
like psychologically that must have been a big thing I know they conceded the last minute uh, equaliser or the late equaliser from Karen Benzema but after losing the first derby in Valdebebes it must have been a big thing to have kind of dominated and asserted themselves in this game and do you think as well that you know uh, like the kind of a lot of the reaction after the Chelsea game was very negative in how Cholo Simeone set the team up do you feel like you know the psychological boost of going and asserting their dominance over a fellow big hitter like Real Madrid, you know, is that a very, very kind of positive sign for the run into the season? And does that maybe even spell a chance of doing damage in London and the return leg of the Champions League? Or do you think that the Champions League is is kind of almost gone for Atletico? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing in the, in the psychological sense. I think there's two competing forces. It's, it's the blow of, of conceding so late, but the the boost, the high of knowing that you were the better team. And as you mentioned, that first derby, they were outplayed and it was the first time all season they'd been outplayed. And you almost wondered after that if Real Madrid would have uh, created a blueprint for other teams to follow and, and then start taking points off Atletico. And that didn't happen. Um, they've dropped a few points along the way, but um, not from being outplayed in any particular match. So uh, to then face Real Madrid again, a team that in the last few years certainly have had their number um, Atletico haven't beat Real Madrid since uh, 2018 in the UEFA Super Cup, which now is a bit of a glorified pre-season friendly, of course. So uh, for them to then go out and be able to outsmart Zidane and his style that, that beat them the first time round, that's going to be huge. That's going to be reassuring. And I think they will take a, a more positive boost from that than a, than a negative one. And then, yeah, about the Chelsea game. I mean, the first leg, I know there was a lot of criticism after that, but I do kind of put that in a different uh, category when it comes to looking at Atletico this season. Number one, the priority is 100% the league. Um, obviously, they, they would love to win the Champions League. Obviously, they go out to win. But I think the players weren't as maybe motivated for that game against Chelsea as, for example, these big La Liga games that are coming up. Secondly, it wasn't even at their home stadium. They had to go uh, to Romania to play it. And then thirdly, and I think this is a thing that, that kind of gets forgotten about uh, especially when it comes to Atletico, is it was a Champions League. It was still technically a home game. Any goal for Chelsea counts as an away goal. And the way that Simeone has been able to consistently get so far in the Champions League is if we have the home leg first, lock the door, 0-0, 1-0, and then go and try and score away. That's been his philosophy the whole time. And it's worked because uh, apart from maybe Real Madrid, <laughs> no team has really gone as deep in Europe as as Atletico have over the years. You look at the coefficient and that tells the story. They're consistently up in the top three for uh, the UEFA coefficients. So uh, they've got a, a different sort of formula for progressing in the Champions League. It's, um, it, and it's very much built around the away goal rule. So considering that was a home game, it didn't surprise me too much that Simeone went a bit more negative, tried to get the clean sheet. It didn't work out. Fantastic goal from Giroud in the end, but... Um, yeah, when it comes to the Chelsea game, I do put that in a sort of different category when it comes to analysing the current state of Atletico Madrid. Mm. Athletic club travel to Duana Metropolitano this, this coming week, as you mentioned. And they're another club who are very, very good. Well, not another club, but their coach, Marcelino, is very, very good at engineering uh, cup competitions and knockout competitions. Uh, they're in the final of the Copa del Rey, where they play Barcelona, uh, having beaten Levante 2-1 in the second leg semi-final after drawing one on the first leg. Um, and remarkably, like Marcelino obviously won the Supercopa de España against Barcelona earlier this season. Uh, he'll play Real Sociedad 
uh, in the 2020 final that's been postponed till now. And then he played in the 2021 final against Barcelona. So he could win three cup competitions in his first season in the job. And, and he only took over San Mamez in uh, January. So it's quite a remarkable beginning to life for him in the Basque country. Uh, how good a coach do you think Marcelino is, uh, Ewan? And how important is he to this kind of swell of form that Atletico, Atletico Club have, have seen? Yeah, he's a fantastic coach and you just have to look at how Atletico are doing and also just, uh, uh, well, how Valencia are not doing since he left. Um, you know, you look at last season, this season Valencia have fallen apart since he left. Part of that is off the field uh, issues. It doesn't help when you sell all your best players. But with Atletico, he's come in completely, um, not maybe completely transformed them because they were a solid enough team, but he's just added that extra edge. And, you know, he's a fantastic coach. The only problem with Marcelino is he does tend to... There's a bit of burnout there um, that's happened at every club. Uh, it's almost like the, the mini Mourinho effect. His Marcelino's maybe second in, uh, second half of his second season, sometimes things start to get a bit a bit tricky with some players. You know, he's very strict on, on diet and weighing the players all the time. So eventually uh, there can be some burnout. But, no, he's a fantastic coach. And, yeah, he can win his own sort of maybe treble of three coppers in a row. Athletic can win a a treble themselves of the Supercoppa, last year's uh, Copa and this year's Copa. The only shame if they do that treble, of course, is that uh, one of the trophies isn't is the same trophy, so I don't know how they're going to pose with the three trophies when they only actually have two physical objects. But um, those are nice problems to have, I imagine, if it ever gets to that, if you're an Athletic fan. Absolutely. First world problems, for sure. Um, Athletic Club's opponents in the Copa final are Barcelona, uh, and they've had a very, very interesting and eventful week, uh, both on and off the pitch. You know, obviously they beat uh, Sevilla three 0 in the second leg of the Copa after losing the first leg two 0 Quite a feisty game. Uh, Lionel Messi and Monchi squaring up the tunnel afterwards, apparently exchanging some harsh words. Uh, they also beat Asasuna two 0 in Pamplona uh, on Saturday evening. Ilaish Mariba scoring his first goal for the club, very talented eighteen year old who we talked about last week on this pod and they face Paris Saint-Germain in the second leg of the Champions League last 16 this coming Wednesday night they've lost the first leg 4-1 of course it's a daunting prospect but they're somewhat emboldened by you know the, the recent presidential election just last night Joan Laporta was appointed as the new Barcelona president taking over from the incumbent who is uh, Josep Maria Bartomeu who was also arrested the previous Monday you know, Barcelona aren't a club that do things quietly. They're a very high-profile club within Spanish society and Catalan society and European football, you could say. Uh, but even by their standards, you in this past week has been quite insane, right? Yeah, I mean, I obviously cover Barcelona quite a lot, but I do feel for my colleagues who cover them a lot more closely because, yeah, I don't think... Uh, uh, many of them have seen their beds much this week. It's been um, basically seven days since it all started last Monday where uh, Bartomeu and a few other directors or former directors get arrested over the Barcagate scandal, which is the reasons for it are, um, if it did happen, um, more financial and, and uh, more about the administration of it. But remember, the heart of it is that they allegedly hired some social media company to put out uh, memes about their own players and 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 some former presidents, so all a little bit strange. And then on the pitch, though, things thing, things are going well. You know, this is uh, this is a good thing for Barcelona. The cup, as you mentioned, they they had that comeback, and and Gerard Piquet scoring that 
uh, a stoppage time equaliser to take that tie to extra time against Sevilla where they won. PK basically bringing people together because uh, the three presidential candidates for the elections were all there at the Camp Nou to watch it. Um, all quite uh, distant because of the protocols, but it made for an interesting look that looked like they'd all fallen out with each other. But when PK scored, they all stood up and hugged each other. Um, so PK can do that to people. And then the elections happened, of course, on, on Sunday, Joan Laporta winning uh, the elections there. So a really busy week for Barcelona. Now it comes to this this PSG game on, on Wednesday. I mean, there's euphoria around Barcelona right now. People are happy that Laporta won. He got more than half the votes. People are obviously impressed with how they've been playing. But can they come back against PSG? I mean, that's a simple no for me. Come on, of course not. Yeah, it's a, certainly a big ask. Certainly a big ask. But uh, I guess with Lionel Messi, uh, all things are possible. And PSG are also, you know, they have a history of uh, falling victim to remontadas, right? And even during the week, there was players talking actually about uh, they beat Brest uh, at the weekend. And after the game, they were asked about the, you know, the 2017 remontada. And he kind of said, well, it was Ama Diallo. He kind of said, you know, stop, stop asking me questions about this. He was like, that was 2017. It was four years ago. You know, there's different players here now. It's a different squad, different mindset. Yeah. I think it was, uh, I think it was four years ago today, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Timely. Timely. Omens. Exactly, yeah. But I was kind of shocked because I guess, like, normally in those situations, they'd be cool as a cucumber and their response is very measured. But the fact that he was so rallied, uh, kind of, I don't know, made me, made me quite interested. But, uh, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. There's actually a special podcast special coming up um, in this channel. Uh, later this week, I'll be speaking with uh, three, um, sorry, four uh, very esteemed people on Football Club Barcelona. And we'll be talking about their uh, post-election future and also uh, their on-the-pitch future under Ronald Koeman. Uh, Ronald Koeman, uh, Ewan, like he's a divisive figure. As you know, in our La Liga Lowdown chat, I often argue with Roman Darker, who's a very well-known uh, Barcelona correspondent about Ronald Koeman because, you know, he coached Everton um, and he didn't do very a very good job there. Uh, but he is a legend at Barcelona and he seems to have, you know, brought through youngsters like we mentioned Elish Mariba earlier, Pedri, who was going on loan until he came into the club. Uh, Ronald Araujo, who was playing for the B team last season, has turned into one of the best centre-backs in Europe. Oscar Mingueza has turned into a very capable centre-back. Uh, Anzu Fati, of course, and many, many more. And he seems to, you know, on one hand be bringing to the youth, on the other hand, have earned the respect of Lionel Messi um, and Jared Piquet and other big players within the dressing room. Do you think that, you know, he's the right man for Barcelona to see them through this period and that perhaps he could be there to almost kind of pave the way for Xavi to take over in maybe a year or two? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. He's the right man for Barcelona. I think um, you know, he as a coach, he has he has a, a lot of flaws, but uh, there's a few environments where I think he can fit well because of what he did as a player, because of um, his personality, and I think one of them is Barcelona, the other one is the Netherlands. So um, yeah, I think he's a man of the house, as they say. He he fits in in Barcelona. He knows the club. He obviously, scored the the winner as they won their first European Cup. So you know, he is a legend there. I mean, to be fair, all these young players are bringing through. I mean, for for example, he likes Mariba. If you tell him Coleman scored the, the winner in the 92 uh, European Cup final, I mean, that was 11 years before he was born. He doesn't care about that. But I think Coleman does have this sort of uh, sort of mystique and respect about him, like a uh, like a sort of, you know, head teacher in school that 
Um, you don't see too much. He's always been around in the background of Barcelona, and, and now that he's having to take a few classes himself, um, there's a there's a sort of respect uh, towards him because of what he did. Partly, I think, from the young players because they don't quite know what he did, but they know he's important. And I think, yeah, he fits in at Barcelona more than he probably would at any other club. Um, you know, as much as he as he did at the Netherlands, where that was probably his other best coaching work uh, to date. Absolutely. And then finally, just in Spain, um, Sevilla are playing Borussia Dortmund uh, this week in the Champions League. They're going also trying to fight uh, a first leg deficit, having lost the first leg 3-2 in um, in Seville. Their form has tailed off quite dramatically after losing to Barcelona in the Camp Nou in the Copa. Uh, they've, you know, they were fleetingly being talked about as title contenders, but that was put to bed quite quickly. Uh, with now consecutive defeats given they lost 2-1 to Elche at the weekend. Uh, you know, like, the game isn't over. I mean, like, a 3-2 scoreline isn't insurmountable for Sevilla, but given the way they're playing at the moment, I mean, as you mentioned in the La Liga Dona podcast, they're both physically and, more importantly, mentally fatigued. Do you think that it's just too big an ask to go to Germany and pull off a remontada of their own? No, I mean, it's certainly not as big an ask as, as Barcelona's and, you know, uh, one goal, obviously Dortmund have the away goals, but uh, the one goal deficit and with no fans there, of course, that makes a huge a huge difference. Um, you know, it would be a massive surprise if Sevilla go there and uh, and win a game of their own. Obviously, they have fond memories of their last uh, trips to Germany when they won the Europa League. So, no, it's certainly possible, but I mean, the loss to Elche was, was poor, not just that they... They looked knackered physically, but mentally as well. So um, Sevilla really do need to to sort of get their heads right for this game. Um, but it's a good opportunity. I'll be interested to hear what, what Jasmine makes of uh, Dortmund's recent form because uh, these are two teams who are, you know, one game away from a potential quarterfinal and they're two teams who I don't think most people would have expected to be there, um, you know, a few months ago. So um, a massive opportunity for whoever gets through and, um, yeah, for both these clubs now, it's it's maybe the the main thing still to fight for for the rest of the season. Absolutely, similar models you could say too in terms of you know bringing through younger players and then selling them to kind of turn a profit and bringing in more younger players. So, so yeah, like Jasmine, like for you, you know, what's the feeling in Dortmund regarding this game? Because you know we mentioned earlier about momentum and the power of momentum in football, and it is a very very powerful thing in my opinion. And I think that's evident in both of these cases because, you know, with Sevilla, they've fallen off a cliff, to put it frankly, since that first leg defeat uh, to Borussia Dortmund in the sanchez Pijuan. While Dortmund have had a bit of a kind of a mini revitalization, you could say, in many ways. I know they lost to Borussia, to, to Bayern Munich 4-2 at the weekend, but up until then, their league form has been quite good. Like, what kind of place do you think they're in at the moment? Um, even before we go into the actual, you know, game itself with Bayern Munich, just in terms of the vibe around the club and, you know, the kind of momentum building there? Um, I think they'll be a little bit more optimistic, especially, as you said, with their home, uh, their domestic form, just kind of being a little bit more stronger. Um, they've had a few weeks with uh, lower table opposition, so their form is more... Honestly, against teams they usually struggle with. Um, Hoffenheim, the draw with Hoffenheim with Dortmund was still a little bit um, shocking, maybe a word, maybe too far, but still disappointing. Um, I think the severe game is quite good for them, actually. I think 
despite it being a slim deficit for Sevilla, um, I think in terms of quality, Dortmund do edge it. And I think they'll be more um, encouraged to see the game out, especially after what happened to Bayern. I think Sevilla will need to come out and score and that will suit Dortmund massively, just the way, the intensity that they play with. And I don't think you can stop Dortmund from scoring. I think they could lose, they could draw, but you need to stop them from scoring. And I don't think Sevilla is a team that could do that. Um, So I think it's the perfect time to play Sevilla for Dortmund. Um, And I think they will have eyes on winning the two cups that they're already in because the Champions League spots are probably um, a bit too far away for them in the Bundesliga. It's certainly an interesting game. I think the first leg in the Champions League game was almost a bit uh, overblown because, you know, the first half, the way Sevilla set up, they were kind of overran in midfield and that enables Dortmund to really tear them open. But in the second half, when Lobotiki changed shape slightly, I went more conservative. I think they got a hold in it a bit better. So I'll be interested to see how he sets up um, against Dortmund in Germany. But um, we just on that game with Bayern Munich, uh, Jasmine, 4-2. It was typically Dortmund, you could say, in many ways. I mean, taking a two-goal lead, early doors, earning Haaland. Like, I, I know we're running out of expletives, for, not expletives, of, um, of adjectives for this guy. He's like a bionic footballer in many ways. It's the way he's scoring goals, personality, like to put them in that two goal lead and then for, for Bayern Munich to blow it and win 4 2. Like, I was kind of struck by it in two ways because I felt like, you know, on one hand, it's typical dormant, but on the other hand, surely Haaland is thinking to himself, you know, I know I'm young, but I need to be somewhere else than this. I need to be somewhere where we're not, you know, blowing two goal leads against title challengers where. Do you think like that's almost going to expedite his exit this summer, maybe? Or, or what? But, like, just first, talk about the game. What do you think of the game itself? And second of all, what do you think of it from Haaland's perspective, both on the pitch and maybe off it as well? Uh, anyone who read my website during the weekend saw that I got the prediction of, uh, tactical prediction of Dortmund uh, by Munich pretty much spot on, especially more actually happened we had Dortmund take an early lead we had um by equalizing by a set piece just before half time with then Bayern just running away with it from the end but in terms of Dortmund as a club compared to Bayern as a club those may have remembered like the four nils the five nils five ones all of this between Bayern and Dortmund in recent years and this 4-2, especially with the 2-0 early lead, is really a step up from Dortmund. And it sounds weird to say a 4-2 loss is a step up, but it really shows the quality that Dortmund have in Erling Haaland. Um, I, I, because I think I predicted it, it was a little less exciting for me. Um because it, I think from my point of view, it was a bit predictable. And especially with um, Dortmund's past games um, against big teams, especially against München Gladbach, and they had the same intensity and the same result kind of came back to bite them. Um, but in Erling Haaland, he is really like he was 
I think maybe it was John who said in our our group chat, but it was like he was made, <laughs> he was made bionically made, and I that is just the perfect description of him. Um, I think it honestly depends on what Dortmund can offer him. I think he understands the role that he's in for Dortmund and Dortmund are, have improved with him. I still think if they don't make Champions League, that will fuel him to go elsewhere if the money and the offers are in for Dortmund. Um, it's hard to see a player of that quality not be in the Champions League next season. And I think he may think the same way. Um, you don't know when your your playing career is up, one bad injury could knock you out with the rest. And we've got like players like Mbappe staying at PSG for a year more or two years more. Um, but there's a there is a different quality in being at PSG and staying there for two, three more years and staying at Dortmund. Not a um to criticize Dortmund, but I feel like he's a player who wants the bigger and best things like Mbappe. And I think the only way he'll achieve that is if Dortmund are in Champions League or he'll go to a Champions League team. Mm. John, do you want to elaborate your description of him as a was a bionic footballer, I think it was? Oh, he's like, it was like he was made in a lab. I don't know if people watch Dragon Ball Z, but he was like the character Cell, who was basically like an amalgam of all the best attributes of all the other characters in the show. Um, he, he's phenomenal. He reminds me of Adriano in that he's a left-footed powerhouse. Also kind of maybe similarities with Romelu Lukaku there. Uh, the thing with Haaland is I think he's very well advised. So I don't necessarily see him taking the, in inverted commas, money move. I think his next move will be to a club, assuming he makes a move, of course. But his next move, I think, will be to either stay at Dortmund because he thinks that will facilitate his development best or to go somewhere where he feels there's the right structure for him to improve further. Uh, I think his father, obviously an ex-pro, advises him a lot. So uh, that that'll probably be, be foremost in his mind, I think, because, I mean, obviously the financial side of it is tempting, but if you have enough faith in your own ability, then you think that's going to naturally follow as success comes. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does. But like Jasmine says, it might necessarily be a foregone conclusion that he leaves Dortmund. Uh, I just hope he doesn't go to somewhere that will hurt Liverpool on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just before we finish off in, in Germany, I just want to get your take on this, uh, Ewan, just from a Spanish perspective, because, you know, I'm sure, like me, when we had this week where Haaland was scoring a brace in Seville and Mbappe scored a hat-trick in Barcelona, I think we both knew that, you know, the next day, the papers, Mundo, Deportivo, Diario Sport, Diario S and Marca were going to be full of talk about the two of them. And indeed they were, and since then it's been pretty non-stop I mean, the plan all along had been for, according to the Madrid papers at least, that you know they were going to target Kylian Mbappe this summer alongside maybe Eduardo Camavinga from Rennes, talented midfielder, and then look to bring in Haaland the next summer. But I think the, the tone has changed somewhat given you know the fact that maybe Mbappe is looking more likely to stay at PSG until the end of his contract, or at least until next summer. His contract is up in two years, I think it is. Um, and also... 
just the form that Haaland is in, like he's really going from strength to strength and he's developing in a pace that people didn't think he was going to develop at, I, I don't think. And like on Sunday morning, for instance, the day after we scored that brace against Bayern Munich, Marca said that, you know, he was in ambition for Madrid. Now he's there kind of almost a matter of state. Uh, like from your perspective, uh, what, what do you think is going to happen with Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland? Because they're both obviously clearly linked with uh, Real Madrid and you know Barcelona have you mentioned with Haaland as well do you think that they could be going to Spain? Yeah I mean I would love if they both came one to Barcelona one to Real Madrid I don't really mind where and sort of become the new Messi Ronaldo keep that rivalry going from a, from a selfish uh, La Liga point of view that would be great I don't think that will happen I don't think they have the money that they did um, you know 10-20 years ago I mean obviously Messi um, cost nothing in transfers and Real Madrid could sign uh, Cristiano Ronaldo from Manchester United at a time when, when Real Madrid was still basically doing their Galactical project. Times have changed. Uh, PSG and Man City have come on the scene. Um, the coronavirus crisis, I really think, has hit Spanish football teams financially more than others. Barcelona look in a bit of a mess financially. They can dream of Haaland, but um, I think the only thing they have going in their favour is they just elected maybe a president who can actually deal with his agent, Mino Raiola still have to pay at the end of the day. So that's that's a tricky one. Um, but no, if, if wherever they go, I mean, the way the way football is, the way we watch all the leagues now, the way the Champions League is, as long as they're both playing at top clubs, as long as, as, as Jasmine says, as long as Haaland is in the Champions League, whether that's at Dortmund or elsewhere, um, I think we've all got something to, to, to enjoy for the next while. And I mean, this is the thing about this rivalry that's developing. Remember last year in the Champions League, I mean, Mbappe was was absolutely trolling Haaland with that yoga celebration after PSP came back. I mean, this was something kind of insignificant at the time, but this if these are the two guys going to be sitting next to each other at Ballon d'Or Awards for the next decade, I mean, that's absolutely fantastic to, to go back through the archive every single time that comes up. Absolutely, absolutely. Maybe... I know sometimes you know the Messi Ronaldo thing was almost contrived because you know from Messi's perspective at least there was never any outward hostility you could say I mean like in games for instance it was mainly Messi and Ronaldo uh, Ramos I remember the, the infamous kind of little spat they had uh, but maybe yeah as you mentioned that clip could be the start of something interesting because you know Haaland especially I mean even he spoke after the Sevilla game that he you know he watched Mbappe do what he did the previous evening in Barcelona and was motivated to replicate that so maybe that could be the real rivalry we'll be waiting for interesting to find out I think but uh, just returning to Germany um, Jasmine uh, Leipzig won 3-0 away at Freiburg um, and now they're close to within two points of Bayern Munich league leaders um, they've won five in a row they're playing Liverpool as you mentioned already um, they've gone on a very very good run since the Liverpool game and we're actually just distracted sorry looking at the table like it's so pleasing to the eye how almost all the teams have played 24 games exactly. Like, I mean, we mentioned earlier in Spain how chaotic it is with the games played and games in hand. It's very, very symmetrical in Germany. Like, it's remarkable. But, um, but anyway, sorry. Just in terms of Leipzig, uh, Jasmine, uh, what do you think of this victory, away victory at Freiburg and their title prospects this season? Freiburg is a notoriously tricky team to break down at times. Um, they haven't been particularly good but they have tripped up they're like a potential banana skin for some clubs and despite not playing well at all I think they had something silly like a 0.7.17 xg against Dortmund and 1-2-1 something like that um but 
they have been overperforming. So it was actually um, quite a, another day in the office for Leipzig to win 3-0. They did it with some conviction as well to really put turn up the heat on Bayern to make sure everyone at the top of the t- table has to be consistent. But um, I think with their game in the Champions League, I think it just might be a bit too much for Leipzig. Now, Leipzig are a great team managed by probably someone who will become a world-class coach if he isn't already. Um, He's only around 34, I think, Julian Nagelsmann. Um, But Leipzig still don't have the quality that Liverpool have. And with the table, the Bundesliga in their sights and with the DFB Pokal semi-final, they might not conserve all the energy to try and overturn this deficit. I think it's just a little bit too much for them to do. Um, even with a Liverpool team in chaos, they Liverpool don't have to do anything, really. It's, uh, it's RB Leipzig who has to come out and fight for this. And you, we saw what happened in the first leg. Um, that could well happen again. And so, um, yeah, I think Leipzig have other things in their sights um, compared to the Champions League right now. I was listening and reading um, over the last week or so about Leipzig and I read that, you know, their kind of unique model makes it very difficult for them to perhaps push into the next echelon and become... You know, I think the phrase uh, Raphael Honigstein used in the uh, European football show, uh, the totally European football show, was that, you know, they're the third best team in Germany, you could say. Uh, Maybe not this season, but over the course of a five-year span, they are. But they're some way from being the third best club in terms of the third biggest club. So my convoluted way of asking you this is that, do you think that Julian Nagelsmann could be on his way sooner rather than later? Like, I don't think he'll hang around if he can't break into that next level. Like, do you think he's going to take him, his talents and his questionable array of suits to another big European club uh, in the near future, given his contract is coming to a close? I think if uh, opportunity presents itself, especially in England, the Premier League is looked at with the heart eyes over in Germany. So I think, I mean, look at Hasenhutl. He went from Leipzig to Southampton. Um, I, so I think we've had the rumours about uh, Nagelsmann being interested in Tottenham. Um, I don't think interested is the right word. He is, because Mourinho is still their coach, no one's wasting any time, especially if thinking about it, especially if you're second to the league in two points within Bayern and you're in a DFB-Pokal semi-final. Um, but I know that if a Premier League quite strong opportunity presents itself, Tottenham, Man United, it, he'll definitely be looking into that. Yeah, it should be interesting to find out for sure. Uh, Schalke, who are, you know, as we've discussed many times, kind of having not a very good season, they drew the law with Mines. Can you tell us more about this game? <laughs> no, it was awful. Um, uh, German newspaper have a rating from I think it's one to six. I think it was kicker, and um, it's the first time since 2012 that the six is terrible. They gave that game a six. Um, 
So, yeah, that's all I can say. It was Gramotis's first game as Schalke manager, and um, he basically said the players aren't really fit. <laughs> and what they did was just defend for their life for 90 minutes. It did not make good for good viewing. Hopefully, at least they're being communicated in the correct language and being called the right names after their recent experiences uh, under the previous coach. You know, Bayer Leverkusen beat Bruce Mushinglabak 1 0 at the weekend. And Mushinglabak are really falling quite low on the table. They're 10th now. They've lost four of their last five. You know, maybe actually announcing that your coach is going to join when your rivals isn't a very good idea, it would appear. No, um, and that's another point on Erling Haaland. If he sees what's going on at Gladbach at the moment and knowing that that coach is going to coach your team, and if you don't have Champions League either, would you would you stay at the same club being coached by that manager right now? <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 there's a massive there's a massive dark cloud atmosphere at München Gladbach and Marco Rose at the moment, and. Um, I don't think anyone actually cared that he was going to Dortmund, but it's, it's the way it's been handled is the way is it's why it's just gone awful over there. Like the play isn't good. Um, their players look tired. I mean, the play. I think I've said this in a previous podcast that they they have to use Lars Stindl all the time, and he's thirty two. He's their top scorer. Um, Alison Player and Marcus Taram are ineffective. Um, Neuhaus is struggling because everyone else around him doesn't really read what he's doing because he's like a step up from them almost. Um, and there's all these things that don't go together. They probably overperformed last year as well. And with your manager going to <laughs> probably saying that he was staying or whatever happened. And then to say, ah, now I'm going to Dortmund. The atmosphere there, they just can't get out of that rut. Yeah, certainly difficult. Certainly difficult. But uh, we're coming to the end of this week's episode. Obviously, a very interesting episode as always. Uh, just to touch on, you know, each of our moments of the week, I thought it would be interesting to see what kind of moment from the last seven days of football stood out most for each of you. Um, for me, I'm going to replicate what I said last week. And it's to do with Ilish Moriba again. Um, like he, as we mentioned, as you had mentioned earlier, he scored his first goal for the club against Asasuna on Saturday evening, uh, assisted by Lionel Messi after setting up Lionel Messi the previous week. And I just, it was a quality goal. First of all, he took the ball from Messi, edge of the box, uh, stepped in in his left foot after kind of drawing the defender out, and then fired into the top corner by virtue of a slight deflection from the goalkeeper's palm. But it was really his celebration that kind of stuck with me because I think so many young footballers in today's game are too cool for school you know very much cultivating a conscious image in social media and on, on instagram and all that kind of thing but i think his kind of childlike almost enthusiasm just this wide-eyed grin is really really refreshing and it's i'm loving seeing it personally and i feel privileged to be able to witness you know the breakthrough of players like him and pedri as well and anzu fati uh, at barcelona i think it's a very exciting kind of uh youthful trident coming through at La Masia. So, yeah, exciting times uh, for Elish Mariba. Uh, but for you, John, um, what was your moment of the week, do you think? Again, it, it's 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 a very strange thing for a Liverpool fan to say, but I just think Luke Shaw's performance, I, I'm just happy for the man. I don't know him, but uh, 
considering all he's been through, all the stick he's got online, uh, it's a nice redemption arc, I think. But also a little bit of love for Leon Goretzka. I thought he was fantastic against Dortmund. And if you want to talk like in terms of specific roles, I think he's the best box-to-box midfielder in the world right now. He has a bit of everything. So uh, I thought he was fantastic to watch as well. A- aside from the two heavyweights, uh, Haaland and-, and Lewandowski, he was a player I most enjoyed in that match. Yeah, Leon Goretzka, of course, was given the honour of being the title of last week's episode. And uh, Jasmine referred to him in her piece, her tactical piece that she mentioned earlier with heart eyes, invert <laughs> comment in the piece. But anyway, so he's he's definitely not underrated, is Leon. But uh, you in for you, what was your moment of the past week? Yeah, I'm going to go for a Barcelona one as well. And I mentioned it earlier, but the PK goal in stoppage time in the cup, you know, uh, there's no fans in the stadium, but you could almost feel like there was a buzz around the camp now. And like I said, Piqué managed to get the three presidential candidates who'd been bickering and criticising each other for months to, to all embrace in a hug. So uh, that was quite a moment. I think what I'm saying is really they should have put Trump and Biden in the Camp Nou presidential box and, and got them to watch Piqué scoring a goal. And it could, have, it could have healed a lot of divisions, I think. Absolutely. He's a very presidential figure in fairness, Jared Pique. I, I felt like even though he spoke, you know, he was kind of saying, you know, I'm so often speaking to you in a negative situation because since he's come back, he's been fighting fires from his injury. But a remarkable character, really, you know, so intelligent off the pitch in his investing and his business ventures. You know, he's he owns uh, FC Andorra, Segunda B-side. And Sancho was third tier. Um, he's married to Shakira. You know, he, he came back from a very serious injury and he's actually out for the next three weeks again isn't he with um, a recurrence of the injury because he played through the pain so yeah he's a very very impressive character you could say maybe even a future presidential candidate in many ways uh, Jasmine what was your moment of the week? I have two short ones one um, Callum Chambers starting for Arsenal as a right back because um, he's been out for a long time so seeing him start was really nice because he's probably one of our longest serving players now but um one one which is great um Hoffenheim played Wolfsburg this weekend Hoffenheim won surprisingly 2-1 but um Wolfsburg's player Ottavio their left back um absolutely jumped in knee high into a tackle <laughs> to foul. It's a wonderful red card. It's the red card that if you're going to get, you do it that way. Um, I'm only laughing at this because the receiving player of that tactical did not get injured because that could easily ruin a career. But please, please just search it up on Twitter or on YouTube. It is a thing of beauty. <laughs> Sounds it, certainly. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it, guys. Uh, thanks a million for joining us. Um, socials jasmine where can we best find you uh twitter underscore jasmine barber perfect john yeah twitter uh, at notorious jos and ewan yeah at e mcdeer it is perfect 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 um and for me it's as well on twitter as well but yeah thank you very much for joining us today guys i hope you enjoyed it i hope you found it informative and i hope you'll join us again next week if you did enjoy it please leave it rating uh, wherever you get your podcast from and also please spread the word to pass it on to a friend because it would really help us grow our audience and we can uh, devote more time and energy into creating episodes for you so yeah keep an eye out for the Patreon content coming this week as well as that aforementioned Barcelona special and uh, we'll talk soon thanks guys thanks guys